Hey guys, before we jump into the episode, I just want to say that we had a couple of recording issues during this episode, so some of the audio isn't as clean as we would have liked it to have been. But hopefully it's not too bad and you can still enjoy our conversation with Sev and Anish, who were very open and generous and talking about everything that goes into making a feature film like Run. We really enjoyed talking to them, hope you will enjoy listening, and now, on to the episode. Hi. I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay. Today, we are talking to the creative team behind Run. So I'm here with Alex Cairos, part of the Lessons from the Screenplay team, and writer and producer, Sef Ohanian, and writer and director, Anish Chaganti. Fellas, welcome back to the show. Hey, thank you. Glad to be back. We're very glad to have you back. Uh, it's exciting because we, we got a tease of Run when we had you on talking about searching. And so now we've gotten mm-hmm. to see the film and we get to ask all of our follow-up questions now that we know. Oh, that's um, so, I don't remember. What, what was the tease? Of? Do, you, do you remember? Yeah, it was, it was, you did like a nice kind of log line about well, like, said. yeah, there's, there's a girl and her mom. Dark set it up secret. As, yeah, there's a dark secret in the midpoint. You find out what's really going on in the first half is an investigation. So we're very excited about it. And congratulations, because it's seeming to do extremely well. I really enjoyed the film. It's like the most watched movie ever on Hulu, which is pretty impressive. So congratulations, you guys. Really awesome. Thank you. We're expecting it'll, it'll last. Uh, it'll stay the most watched Hulu film ever until the next Hulu film comes out and Hulu can... <laughs> release some more stats about whatever (laughs) listen enjoy it while it lasts yeah (laughs) it's still quite an accomplishment we're really excited to talk to you guys about your writing process again you guys had really interesting and awesome advice last time and the filmmaking process how this is was different or similar to searching and then yeah your experience with hulu and this kind of new distribution model that movies are finding now that we're in 2020 and the world has changed since last last time we all talked. So yeah, so I kind of wanted to start, you know, with what was the inception of this film? Because I really enjoy how simple and focused it is. You know, it's just a couple characters in a contained place. It, it feels like a movie, just like a like a classic movie. And there aren't a whole lot of movies coming out that have that like just old school, very focused and effective storytelling and I, I just really appreciated that so I'm curious just to rewind where did this the idea for this movie come from basically you know the the previous film that both of us had worked on together was called searching and searching was you know I'm sure your fans are familiar because we were on with searching but um, searching was a very very technically complex unconventional extremely modern movie you know and it required a lot of like sort of out of the box thinking and problem solving. And it was unconventional to every single person who's working on the movie. And for me, as someone who has never made a movie, the entire process of making that film, all I could think about was one day making a normal movie. You know? <laughs> and I, and, you know, I, I think like in a lot of ways, Run was, before we even came up with the story, was designed as like a set of parameters that I really wanted to execute for myself to prove to myself that I knew how to make a movie um, and that I could kind of, elevate myself to the next step before I elevated myself to the next step and stuff. So, you know, for, in a lot of ways, run is a direct response and that is the, it is the exact opposite of searching, you know, for as unconventional as searching is like run, like you said, is a, it was intended to be a very kind of classic old school thriller Um, for as complex searching is run is extremely sort of like a bare bones, two characters, one household kind of a thing. And for as sort of like, you know, we got a lot of the haters of searching, you know, 
people call it like a gimmick we relied on, or even, even the people who love that movie, it's a gimmick, like we'll acknowledge it's a gimmick that we made work. And I just wanted to be able to show myself and maybe other people that like, you know, I could go the other direction and like, don't give any gimmicks, you know, and we'll still make something thrilling. And so like, when those were the parameters to it, one day we stumbled on a news article that at the time had not been adapted into six other properties, uh, you know, since, since yeah, like uh, when, we had, when we had read it and we thought to ourselves, wow, if you twist one element of that news article and keep this central kind of this horror, a secret that one character is keeping from the other character as opposed to this like thing in, out in the open, you have a foundation for a Hitchcockian movie. And once we started, Seven and I started talking about that, it just sort of became text that we just couldn't stop and little set pieces and scenes and back and forth. And it slowly kind of grew into a, an outline. Awesome. It's fun watching this, having seen searching, because like you said, it is completely the opposite. It's fun to see that like range be reached immediately. And I think as a creator, I'm sure that's fun to do one thing and then do the exact opposite and just like flex both sides of those, those muscles. So, so yeah, I'm curious, as you were developing it, like, were there other um, kinds of stories or inspirations that you were drawing from and trying to shape, you know, how how horror is it going to be? How thriller is it going to be? Kind of what was, what kind of like led you to arrive at this, this genre of the story? Yeah, I think, you know, from, from the beginning, we wanted to make something that felt, we always described Run as one half of a Hitchcock movie, one half Hitchcock movie, and then the second half, Don't Breathe. I think the editing process, which I'm sure we'll talk about, uh, sort of changed that into like first, fifth Hitchcock movie and four fifths, Don't Breathe. Um, and <laughs> Uh, but like the whole film was always supposed to be from the writing stage, at least like kind of one of those old school thrillers that didn't rely on blood or, or gore, but rather just like a ticking clock and like a character having to, to use a phone without somebody finding out, you know, those mm -hmm. were all like the movies that like that this was sort of like trying to be and for me at least the movies that kind of got me into this whole thing like like I, I grew up on like the Shyamalan movies and he was inspired by Hitchcock movies and like those sort of like old school feeling where like the stakes are still high but they're so domestic and they're so small and they're so contained to one character's like specific plight um was always sort of like a an inspiration to sort of uh, to draw from and, and those inspirations both literally i mean the, the movie wears its inspirations on its sleeve so outwardly you know like the references are a plenty kind of throughout but um yeah those are sort of ins in, uh, inspirations from the beginning awesome and maybe we could save this for later if we want to be kind of more chronological with our pre-production, production, post-production, post but I'm so curious about, you, you mentioned something there about the editing process. So was the screenplay structured differently than the finished film? It's not that it was necessarily structured differently, but we took out so much that used to be in the script and even in early cuts that just by the very nature, like events started getting, you know, just crushed, you know, like it used to be 20 minutes between this plot point and that plot point. Now it's two minutes. You know, it was, it was so funny because even on Reddit, I remember somebody in the screenwriting forum was talking to me about like, what did you guys' break to two? Or is like, you know, I was like, I was like, oh man, that's so crazy. Because like, our like inciting incident and the break to two are so close together. And you know, when you edit films, it's so typical to break out the films into separate reels, just to kind of help everyone track what you're working on and rendering time. So, you know, movies have five reels, six reels, whatever it may be. I remember for us, like our real two ended up being like, like three minutes or something by the end of it. And, and so I think that's what Anish means when we talk about the structure changing in that, you know, just by the virtue of like, we used to pitch this thing as like first half is, is a Hitchcockian psychological thriller. Second half is don't breathe or a prison break movie. But now that the first half has a little bit been gutted, it's hard to call it the first half. It's really the first fifth in Anish's uh, own words. 
you know, was there a story reason why a lot ended up coming out of that section? Because you know, I one thing I was struck by with the film was that you guys don't drag us on too long, you know, making us wonder if this is a Munchausen by proxy kind of story. Like that becomes kind of the pretty clear pretty quickly, which I actually appreciated because I think that's where my mind goes to right away when there's, you know, somebody who's very sick with a controlling mother. Like we have seen it a few times now you know, in, Sixth, in Sixth Sense. That's a subplot and Sharp Objects on HBO. That was kind of part of the plot. Uh, so I actually, I really appreciated that the movie didn't try to build most of its story on that being the twist. There's actually another twist to come post the Munchausen by Proxy twist. Uh, so was that part of, you know, I'm curious... Was that why some of that was taken out? Or what was the rationale in the edit for gutting some of that act too? You know, funny enough, I think that's one of the benefits of what, what happened, um, what you just described. Uh, there's, a lo- there's a lot of feeling of like, I, I knew where this was going. And so it was nice to get to the point where it was confirmed and, and the movie goes forward. I think that was an unintended good consequence of what was happening, at least, or like the, the way the movie was going to be perceived on our end, I would say my end, unless Seb disagrees, but on our end. The reason that we, the, a lot of the movie got cut, unfortunately, is just because of the context of the movies that surrounded it and the shows that surrounded it. When we wrote this film, there's a big lesson to us, and I think like to listeners of this podcast, about like writing out of the headlines. You know, like when we mm. wrote this film, we were kind of inspired by an article. You know, since that film, since that article came out, there was a documentary based on that article. There was a Hulu miniseries based on the article. There was uh, a twist in that in that show that you referenced earlier. Um, there was uh, there are subplots in another Ryan Murphy show. There, you know, there's just so, it became so part of the cultural lexicon that like Run started becoming a product of its own culture as opposed to being able to be edited outside of itself. Um, and I think that is like one of the things that the script, if you read the script, it's a lot more flushed out in that first half. And like, you know, I think even if my argument and like, I, I think I've been, there are deleted scenes on Hulu that I kind of uh, introduced with no sort of like hiding of how I feel about them. So like, I think like my argument was, and I, again, I'm saying this, Alex, knowing that like you liked what the, 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 the what it played out worked for you, then the sense mm-hmm. hide the fact that what the twist was. But like, for me, what would have been just as interesting as even if we were sure that it was Munchausen, even if we were sure, there's still this cat and mouse game being played between the two of them that I right. think is really, really interesting. And that stuff got taken out because everybody's seen this a thousand times before. Everybody knows it's Munchausen. Let's just get to the escape. Mm. And, and that was an argument sort of being uh, argued against us. And, and, and to be honest, like, it's not a dumb argument. You know, it, it makes perfect sense to be argued with the context of the time. I think the, it, it, maybe in 20 years or whatever in the future, when this, if we'll ever, ever be able to look back on this, there will be a version of this movie that maybe can exist outside of the 2020 timeframe it was released. Well, now, now I want to see the deleted scenes because, I mean, I'm always down for some Sarah Paulson, Kira <laughs> Allen, Cat and Mouse. That just sounds like fun. So. But you guys know what's so funny, man? Like when we were writing the script, and actually, no, when we were nearly done with the script, I was talking to my friend, Ryan Krugler, and I gave him the same exact, you know, logline pitch that I gave you guys. This is like, like, you know, over, well over a year ago. And he was like, oh, that sounds amazing, especially you guys making it and he's directing, like, that's gonna be amazing. He's like, but have you got, have, have you, are you guys watching Sharp Objects? And, and <laughs> I was watching Sharp Objects and, and, you know, my fellow producer, Natalie Kasabi, and on the movie, we were super into Sharp, Sharp Objects every week. But it was still like middle of the season, but Ryan had read the book. 
And I was like, no, we're watching it. He's like, have you read the book? I was like, no. He's like, okay. Mm, okay. <laughs> so it's like, it's definitely like this foreshadowing of like this, like, like you guys are thinking each better perfectly. Like it is in the lexicon. And I, I mean, something that we've talked about or Nisha's definitely brought up is like, you know, well, you know, some people look back on films 10 years later, like when, when you're well outside of this moment, like does the movie feel differently, you know, not having to compare it to other projects that may or may not still be, you know, in your mind. But I mean, it was interesting because I mean, even early on, like there was, we did have debates internally. Like, do we want to do this? Is this going to be fresh? And I remember like one thing that Anish said to me that kind of blew my mind was that there was a real life serial killer named Ed Gein, I think. His awful crimes inspired three very different distinct movies, like Silence of the Lambs, Psycho, and Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And just the notion that like, you know, real life inspiration can spark vastly like different approaches to storytelling. I remember to me, I was like, all right, all right so that, that makes me feel like, okay, cool, let's do it. Because I knew weighing like, okay, this may not be the freshest thing by the time, you know, it comes out because these things take forever. But also the fact that, okay, I know we can do this well. I know Anish can direct the heck out of this. Like this is our opportunity to find a young actress who has a disability and give them a leading role. Like there were so many positives to us. And like, even on a really like career trajectory way, it did make sense for us to like follow up searching with like a really tight thriller that had some really cool elevated set pieces to help launch us for our third collaboration that we're, we're planning on doing. Like it all kind of made a lot of sense. And obviously looking back now, it's so easy to be like, hell yeah, because it, you know, it clearly worked out um, in so many ways. But I mean, it, it, Anish is so right. Like I think writers do need to kind of be thinking, you know, so like you have to be thinking three years from now, is this idea going to be just as relevant and not just in like what sells, but rather like what do people want to watch, you know? Well, and there's also just, you know, Michael and I've talked about this a lot where we'll have an idea. I'll tell him something that, you know, I, something I'm working on. And then a movie comes out like two months from now. That is basically that idea. You know, it's, there's a, there's a weird like collective consciousness that we're all plugged into. I think, you know, just, yeah, what's in the air, what's going on in the culture, what are we all reading and seeing? And I think we don't realize how all of our brains, you know, are more similar than we think in, in taking that data and, coming up with what we think are like our magical original ideas, but it's like, oh man, everybody else is thinking that too. Uh, so it's a real challenge for writers. You know, if you're trying to tap into like a, the pulse of the moment or a cultural thing happening, a lot of other people are also thinking about that. But just to cap off this tangent, I, what you guys did was so smart was you made a very specific story with specific characters that wasn't just a Munchausen by proxy story. And so I don't think it falls into that trap of just being another one of, you know, the same thing. You guys did your own thing that is unique and has its own character to it. So I, I don't think it falls into that trap at all. Yeah, I, I feel like that's kind of the thing that you have to be thinking about because if, if you're too worried that your idea is going to be capitalized on by somebody else, like you could just get frozen and not do anything. Right. So I think focusing on what is the way that you want to tell the story that is unique. And I think that's yeah. definitely what's here in Run and what I really appreciated about it. Because the way you you handle the Munchausen and trying to figure out how to even describe it, it's like, it's there, it's part of the setup, but it's not like about that. Like it's about like a girl trying to escape and you know, kind of fulfill everything that she's capable of. And so I'm, I'm curious when you guys were writing and developing it, like how, like what were your conversations about how you want to tell the story? Like, like what was the heart of the story that you wanted to convey? And what were some of those constraints that you were putting on yourselves? Yeah, I, I can start. I mean, to us, like, you know, one of the, one of the typical, I guess, motivators for real life Munchausen by proxy cases is like, 
this outward facing thing of like, and I haven't seen the act yet very much on purpose. I'm definitely gonna watch it eventually. But like, I believe it's like, I want sympathy. I want, you know, people to admire me and like, look at what my family's going through. I'm, I'm working my butt off. You know, for us early on, it was like, we didn't want to make it about that. It had to always be internalized for, for the mother character, Diane, played by Sarah Paulson. It was all about dependency. You know, like this idea that like you have children and they depend on you and they need you. And there's a certain fulfillment you get from your life if you are, you know, serving that purpose. But eventually one day that that's going to end. And like what happens to a woman who maybe has nothing else, nothing else in her life. And this is all she has. Like, what lengths will she go to to keep that? And is that not still arguably love? So, like, we, we realize, like, if we can tap into that psychological aspect, you know, it, it could, at, at the very least, be really specific. And on top of that, I mean, everything else you guys said, like, we knew we didn't want to make something that was too melodramatic. It had to have excitements and lots of highs and lots of lows. And, like, early on, we kind of had this idea of, like, this Mission Impossible sequence, you know, like, this midpoint centerpiece of the film of, like, a girl escaping as something as innocuous as a domestic house, but, like, making it feel like it has the stakes of Tom Cruise on the outside of a skyscraper. Like, a, a lot of that kind of informed, like, okay, if we're going to do this, here's the approach we should have. I'm, pro- I'm probably forgetting a lot of stuff. Anisha, I'm sure you have a lot more. Yeah, I mean, the only, no, you didn't. I think the only thing that I would add is, is that thematically, the thing that, you know, we were trying to keep in mind, and this is something that I think, man, I keep coming back to like what got pulled out of the movie. The movie's 90 <laughs> minutes, so like it's, it's or 84, so it's, it's, it's easy to say that. So like, one of the things that was sort of in the script that we kept trying to talk about was this element of like, we all become our own parents, even when, when we are trying to not. In the original script, there's a lot of conversations that Diane has, Sarah Paulson's character has about her own mother and a lot of allusions mm. to her grandma, or Chloe's grandmother. And that's mentioned throughout the film and, and visually referenced throughout the film. And when we finally reveal the truth about what happened to that character, which is another deleted scene, like it, it explains how a little bit about how Diane became the person that she is and how in trying to like push away her own mother, she kind of turned into a version of her. And at mm. the end of the film, mm. Chloe, who has spent her whole life now, like in that little 13 year gap or, or sorry, I forget how many years between the thing. We changed that so many times, but at, at the <laughs> epilogue, like how many years goes by, we can imagine that she's, her daughter has spent so much time trying to like separate herself from her mom. In a way, she ends up becoming her mother too, but she still ends the movie because like every single woman in this family, what we were insinuating was like sort of passing on this abuse to the next person she ends up passing it upwards and, and ending the chain and not going down to her own daughter. Mm. Um, that was an element that I, you know, we loved in, this, in the script and like how it would sort of talk about we all become our own parents even when we're not trying to, even when they're evil. Th- those sort of themes of it kind of were prevalent um, throughout the film and, and one of the sort of like totems of the film um, along with the concepts of like dependency and, and, and when love enters that area of dependency. I definitely got some of that that thematic vibe from the very last moments of the film. It was like that you know that that final twist does give you a little bit of that shiver of like oh there there is like a passing on of of this thing disturbing cycle. When we talked to Seven and Niche for a podcast episode on their film Searching, Sev said of Hollywood, people say it's all about who you know. I've found it's more about who knows you. And I completely agree with this. Since launching Lessons from the Screenplay, I've had a number of opportunities emerge as people discover the channel and reach out to me. So to make opportunities happen, you have to make good work and you have to have an online presence. That second part can be tricky, which is why I think you should check out Nathaniel Drew's Skillshare class, Creativity Unleashed, 
discover, hone, and share your voice online. I like that his approach isn't about copying some other creator. It's about learning who you are and what your voice is, and then figuring out how to best communicate that with the world. And it's just one of the thousands of classes on writing, photography, graphic design, and more that can be found on Skillshare. And if you use our link, skillshare.com slash BTS, you get a free trial of premium membership. So head to skillshare.com slash BTS to start to discover your creative voice. Thanks to Skillshare for sponsoring Beyond the Screenplay. So I want to talk about that, that the Mission Impossible sequence. I, I like describing it <laughs> like that because that's, that's really what it feels like. And I feel like that's the film kind of feels like it's going to do a quick reference to video games where when we talked to Neil Druckmann who wrote and directed The Last of Us he talked about in video games they often build the middle of the game first because that's when all of the mechanics are kind of fully realized and that's what everybody um, you know that's when the player will have everything they that they need hearing you guys describe that Mission Impossible sequence that's kind of how this that feels for this movie is I feel like that's when the movie kind of fully like blossoms and like the the payoff of all of these setups that have been done you know her, the house and the design of the house all these boundaries like boundary and being boundless is obviously a, a thing thing that comes up a lot and so you have all these boundaries that are innocuous in and of themselves and have been kind of meticulously set up throughout and it kind of creates this perfect like maze that then results in this epic you know just it's a crawl across the roof but you know so much you know the limitations and everything that's at risk and it really pays off like I think that's that's the most fun part of the movie for me because of all these reasons and so I'm curious to hear about you guys when either in the script phase or on set and the production design how did you come up with those boundaries and, and how much thought was given to like all all the roadblocks that you could design to force this character to take all these crazy actions in the beginning of this i think we mentioned that like we wanted the first half of the film to feel like a hitchcock movie and the second half to feel like don't breathe but one thing that we never wanted to sacrifice was the sort of sense of the movies like minimalism and using every element that we had around the film and never sort of like blowing up the world in any sort of like kind of mm -hmm. crazy way and so from the beginning when we set when we made chloe into this very sort of like ingenious thinker out of the box thinker, very witty, very like great with our hands and stuff like that. We knew that like that the the solve for this escape sequence would have to pay off this personality that we that we set up, who is sort of like ingenious. She's always coming up with like such clever solutions um, to the problems at hand, you know. And like we literally, basically, honestly, didn't even know how she would do it. We just knew <laughs> that like she's gonna wake up locked in this room, and then and then remember us talking about like, okay, how would you do this? How would we do this? How would we get out? Basically, like lock the room, make every single possible escape up unavailable to her, unavailable to us as writers, and then try to write, write ourselves out of that using a, a minimalist kind of vibe, basically paying off all the elements that we'd already set up and kind of paying off Chloe's character. And then from there, we kind of just got into, I don't know, like we just looked out the window and we're like, okay, she can <laughs> crawl. Uh, and <laughs> from there. <laughs> one of the, you know, one of the tools that Anish and I have in our writing toolbox is, and one that I think we use all the time, is just we write ourselves into corners intentionally all the time. And a lot of our movies tend to be thrillers with high stakes and, and you know, even heist movies that we've written, like, it's like, okay, this is an impossible problem. We don't even know how to solve this. All right, we're done for the day. And then we'll spend a couple of days thinking and texting and what about this and what about that? And like, 
You want to have that problem that is so impossible so that that 1% chance feels really satisfying yet surprising to, to the reader or watcher. And this was definitely one of those times, you know, like, and, and so much of this movie kind of represents this escalating arms race between the mother and the daughter. And like mm-hmm. this famed first half that we keep talking about that kind of existed more on a psychological level, but in this, this section of the movie kind of exists on a very like real level. It's like daughter's going to daughter's locked in a room. All, all good. I'm going to break out the window. Daughter's, you know, uh, suddenly like, uh, oh, wait, I'm locked upstairs. Okay, I'm going to try and push myself down the stairs. Like, it, it just kind of had to feel like this never-ending pulse. Like, you know, I, I love horror films that, like, usually when it gets to, the, like, the third act, when it's kind of just, like, the last, you know, the final girl or whatever, like, relentlessly trying to survive after horde after horde. And we wanted to kind of convey that same feeling, but, again, like, in a house. Like, I think so often movies, you know, because they can, like, will resort to those massive CGI battles and, and all these things to convey all that kind of feeling. But like one of the challenges we've always had is like, how do we do that same thing just on the fraction of the budget and not only for economical reasons, but just because we've all been locked in our rooms probably by our parents or at least sent to our rooms. You know, like we all know what that feels like to like be at odds with your parents. You'll know what it feels like to want to break free. I think today more than anything, everyone really knows what it feels like to want to get out of your house and go explore. And like, I think <laughs> yes. that. <laughs> that universality can I ho- hopefully kind of create this real sense of exertion and an aspiration when she finally does succeed. Yeah, I think I think you know as hard as as hard as uh, I guess I, I am on on the film as I will be with on anything that I ever make. Like the sequence of her waking up to the end of the mailman sequence, that stuff happens with the mom and the mailman. Like that stuff, like that feels like true script to screen. You know, in 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 from the moment she wakes up, it was just like. It was really nice to watch that particular sequence because I was like, yep, that's the movie that we wrote and it worked in that perfect sense. I love the mailman scene. It's so, so yeah. good. <laughs> when Sarah Paulson drives up, it's just so nerve wracking. <laughs> yeah, congratulations. Just want to put it out there like on right. Sarah Paulson being the star of your movie because she's just <laughs> a goddess and she's amazing. And, and for finding Kira Allen, who is like, everybody's just wow, amazed by this newcomer. So great casting. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I feel like I, and I do, we have to talk about the performances more, but just to finish that, that section that you were just talking about, Anish, that's, I, I feel there's this kind of sense that I can get when watching a movie where I just feel relaxed and like I'm in good hands throughout the whole movie, but especially that sequence, I feel like I'm just in the movie and completely in the flow of going from beat to beat and like yeah. emotionally on, you know, right in sync with the movie. And that's so just, yes. Well, very well executed, and congratulations on that. Well, and I do want to underline just what you guys were saying before about writing yourselves into a corner because we've said this in the podcast a lot, but I think it's really important lesson. You know, so often as writers, it's scary to do that. It's scary to put your characters in a situation that you literally can't even imagine how they can get out of it because it's like, well, how can I write that? And I, I love the method you guys use of of you come up with the impossible scenario and then put it away for a day or two and just like noodle over it. You don't have to have the answer right away. It's probably good to not have the answer right away. It's good to make it unsolvable until you've really had some time to stew over it. And that's what makes a satisfying sequence. Like when it cuts to outside her room and there's like the rake or the garden tool, like (laughs) blocking her door. Like, I don't know what's going to happen now. Like I'm completely with the movie because I have no idea how she can get out of yeah. this. So, bravo. One of my favorite payoffs in that in that whole sequence is, and this is something I didn't even think about until I think I saw a comment recently somewhere, was like, you know, setup and payoffs is a classic kind of thing. And a lot of that sequence is a lot of paying off a lot of objects and mentalities and stuff like that. 
is the soldering iron is almost like a like the unexpected payoff for the 3D printer. Because a lot of people thought like the 3D printer was what was going to get paid off. But it wasn't the 3D printer that got paid off. It was a tool that helped make a part of the 3D printer. I just, I love, someone said that the other day. I was like, oh, wow, I didn't even think about that. Like, that's so cool. <laughs> yeah. Alex, I'm, I'm glad you brought up that moment of revealing, you know, the, the rake, the tool, blocking the door. Um, because that was something I was paying, to, paying attention to a lot when watching it is when, what information is revealed to the audience. Because there, there are moments, you know, most of the time where, just with Kara Allen's character and seeing what she's seeing and, and learning what she's learning. But there are these moments where we jump to Diane's perspective very briefly, or, you know, that moment where, you know, uh, we know the door is locked, but she doesn't know what it is, but then it reveals to the audience what it is. And so I was wondering if you guys had conversations about that at all, as far as strategies of when you reveal what, if you were trying to, you know, mostly align it to a character, or if it was just about what would make the most compelling cinematic experience. Um, yeah, just your, your thoughts on revealing information, because that's a big part of thriller movies, obviously. That's so interesting you say that. One of the bigger debates, this is, this is probably really fascinating, I imagine, like, is the entire first half of the movie, like, we're entirely with Kira's perspective, except for one moment. Um, you know, which was, you know, in the trailer, it's it's a big, like, you know, we call these, like, really high Nielsen dial moments, because, like, if you're watching with a dial, you're going to go all the way to the top. And that's, um, you know, in the first first act or second act, first act, sorry, when daughter goes downstairs to check um, on the internet what this medication is. And the internet's disconnected, and she's kind of like, she knows that it can't be coincidence that the internet's down, so she's reeling from that. And the audience is probably paying attention to the far background where the camera racks to reveal a faint outline of what looks like Diane in the kitchen, like a total creepo. Um, that's mm -hmm. the one thing that the audience sees that, if I'm not mistaken, like that Chloe doesn't see. And that actually, that, and you know, that's obviously a really good moment because it's like, oh, this is a thriller. It's kind of horror vibey, um, you know, studio like that because it's something they can put in the trailer and they know people in the theater are going to love it. I mean, that's why we wrote it. But there was also this unfortunate consequence of that moment. Because there's an argument that like after this moment um, where we initially had in the script um, and even in early cuts, like for, and even in, in our outlines, we used to have this other longer sequence that would happen here, this escalating arms race kind of deal. It almost feels unnecessary because the audience now knows mom wasn't in the kitchen like to drink tea at night. She was watching to make sure Chloe's being a good little prisoner. So it's like, why are we going to watch scenes of Chloe try and still figure out what's going on if the audience is going to be this much ahead of her? And like, you know, Hitchcock always said, you explode a bomb, it's surprise, but you show the bomb, it's suspense. That can only go so far, especially like in the context of this world in which every other weekend there's a Munchausen by Proxy project coming out. <laughs> so, so like that, that, there was moments where we were debating, should we take that shot out? You know, like, should we lose this acute sense of suspense and horror and dread and potentially save this more like broader suspense you know and, and thread like that it was a big like you know and in our particular case the studio definitely had an opinion which is don't lose the trailer <laughs> moment which obviously you get but it, it it was it was it was that really that's why it's so i'm curious that you asked that question michael like it is a big big thing to discuss like when you're when you're writing these kinds of movies yeah it's really interesting to hear that there was this kind of back and forth and i feel like this whole time now i just want to watch like the extended cut to to see both versions. <laughs> well, we extended about like seven more minutes too. <laughs> it's not even that long. But it's crazy how, how, how tiny, tiny, tiny changes like that can really affect your overall like feeling of what 
is where structurally and all that stuff. Well, especially in like a mystery story, yeah. you know, cause, cause like Michael was saying in a mystery, in a thriller, psychological thriller, so much of what we're watching for as the audience is information and reveals and when do we get to know what and who knows what and what character finds out what when and so i imagine those tiny changes in this genre make a huge difference in a way that you know just a straight drama or dramedy or whatever those small changes may not affect the story in this like seismic way so yeah that's interesting just just how even into the edit you have to be thinking about that and when do you want the audience to like be sure that the mom is evil or not. I, I love that shot. I, I think it's a great creepy shot. And I, you know, yeah, no, because totally I knew enough about, I knew enough it. about the movie. <laughs> it, it's also that weird thing of like, you know, I watched it with my parents the other night and they hadn't seen any trailers. They hadn't seen, they didn't know anything about the film at all. And that was so much fun to watch it with them because cause they're also very like verbal uh, audience members, <laughs> especially <laughs> in their own home. And so they were genuinely like, like you had them every step of the way like they didn't know anything and so they were like shocked that sarah paulson was actually evil like it was so much fun and it's always a tricky thing with a movie like this you wish as a director as a writer you could just give your audience that harry potter like memory forgetting spell because everybody's seen so much like media usually going into a movie trailers posters and so you have these preconceptions and with a film like this it's so much fun to not have any of those Mm -hmm. so you truly are surprised when Sarah Paulson is like evil demon person in the background. Um, so yeah, <laughs> That's it's... why I quit watching trailers after Spider-Man Homecoming. I don't, I don't watch trailers mm. anymore if there's a movie that I know I'm going to watch anyway. Like it just, you know, I mean, I guess some are done really well, but I hear you. Um, by the way, one other fun piece of, just because we were, you guys were talking about the garden, the garden rake uh, outside of her door as a moment where we kind of see outside of Chloe's perspective, like what's really fascinating is when we wrote the script, we had written in the script, like mom has like a professional security latch kind of thing. I don't remember what, how we described it, but the- It was one of those like things that you could buy at Ikea where it was just like, like it's like a, a door stopper, you know, like- Exactly. And like, but there was an issue in the sense that, you know, Chloe's door opened inward, you know, like most, like most bedroom doors. So then I remember, and you know, normally like with any movie, like you have meetings with the props team and you're like reviewing props well in advance. This movie had so much going on and we were a much, you know, tighter budget than, you know, most studio movies. I don't remember, I don't think any of us had really approved this thing until the day of. So then I remember on the day of, we had a wonderful prop master named Jason Gibbs who like, who brought the last thing and it was like, clearly like, ooh, that looks odd. Like that's, that's not how, that's not going to really work for us. It just didn't make sense. And I think when he, he pitched bringing like a, a stick, like, cause it looked like something from a garden. I remember saying, oh, can we just add a rake to that? And now it's like literally the garden. But what was interesting was the initial idea was if mother had the security thing, then you suddenly are realizing, oh, mom has always been planning for this inevitability that one day she would need mm-hmm. to, you know, like lock Chloe up. And now because it's a garden rake, like the implication of being outside of Chloe's mind, it's like, oh, mom is improvising. She's reeling and she's doing whatever it takes to keep the lie alive. And I remember thinking like, like we were like juggling. I'm like, you know, that's actually not the worst like improvisation. And like, again, props to Jason for like in the moment he went and found that for us. But just, just really fascinating that even a prop can kind of tell you a lot more about what's happening outside your perspective. Um, oh my God, that dog is so cute, Alex. Uh, yeah, my, my little dog Penelope is sleeping behind me. On oh, yeah. <laughs> she just poked her head up. <laughs> I love pets in the background of Zoom calls. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. 
For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I, I want to talk more about what it was like on set and, and things like that where the story, you know, you, you write the script, you think you, you know what it's supposed to be, and then making a movie is a whole other thing where things are constantly going wrong and you're discovering things. And um, so I'm curious to hear from you guys, what was that experience like? And, you know, Anish directing Sarah Paulson and finding uh, Kira Allen and, and getting these really great performances out of both of them. Cause that's, that's one of the things that I think is risky in some ways about making such a focused, intimate domestic story is that it, it, the movie relies on those performances and Kira kind of has to hold the whole movie on her shoulders and go toe to toe with Sarah Paulson and all these things. So yeah, I'm just curious to hear what was production like, what were some interesting challenges and what were some lessons that you uh, left set with? Yeah. So, I mean, the directing is, uh, I mean, directing Sarah Paulson and then directing Kira Allen, those are like very, almost like a schizophrenic experience. Like, um, you know, just because like, you know, Sarah is a veteran and Kira has never been in anything before. And so like the way that you're talking to them, the way that you're not talking to them, the way that you're, what you're telling them, the information that you're telling them or communicating to them or like any sort of like encouragement that you're giving them or not encouragement that you're, you know, like that's all like, I was like, it felt very, very kind. It was very difficult, you know, like I think uh, overall is just like, because the processes were so different and then oftentimes they're being the same scene together. So like you're going to one character and you're not saying anything uh, like, like I would tell Sarah like two words and I'd go to Kira and give her a book, you know, of just information like, and, and it's like, you're, it, I think so much of that is just like, well, what is, I mean, I don't want Sarah to think that I'm not giving her any thoughts, but like, you know, she's a, perf- she was incredible on her take one. So like, what am I supposed to, you know, it's still like, you know, it's a lot of like, there's a lot of like sort of mental games that you're playing while you're sort of delivering or while you're working with two kind of pe- people who are acting with each other, both whom, you know, you've kind of predetermined or judged that like need totally different ways of, um, or different types of input, I guess. That was a very kind of challenging part of the experience on top of which, you know, this was my first live action movie, you know? So like, I think like, you know, it felt like on searching, you know, I I felt like uniquely capable, like everybody else was learning it for the first time. And like, I'd done this a few times before. And now it was like, I was the only person who had never done this. And everybody around me had done this many times before. And so like that sort of element of like, on top of talking to actors differently, just being like, am I even doing the right thing? Like, you know, there's so many terms of, and, and how like just processes of how movies get made that I learned making this movie. And one of the many reasons I think we were kind of, we had the, the smart foresight to do something small and not like write Mission Impossible as our next movie. But <laughs> yeah, that was, that, was a bit, that was sort of like a, a, a directing kind of a, a, a challenge or an insight. But I think from a, a writing standpoint, you know, the biggest challenge on the production was our weather. Um, we shot in Winnipeg, Manitoba, uh, which is one of the coldest places ever. And we shot a story that took place in Washington state in the spring. And we shot it in, in Winnipeg in the winter. Um, and Winnipeg in the winter gets like, I mean, it's notorious. It's not like just cold. It's notoriously cold. And we were, you know, shooting in like, there were days that was like minus 14 degrees outside. And oh so like God. a lot of the story has to change because like, we can't, 
feasibly shoot outside. You know, and, and the, the biggest arena where the story changed because of the weather was our climax. The, the finale of the movie was always supposed to take place in a hospital. It was supposed to take place in a hospital in the morning. And what ended up happening was taking place in still a hospital, but what looks like and feels like to be like a convention center, which it was, you know, like the, and I really do think a lot of the, um, the climax is like punch came like 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 there was there's a lot of time i mean compromising is is a part of the name of the game you know when you're making movies since you're a kid you're like oh shit we don't have a blue paper we had a red paper like how do we make it work you know like (laughs) like that's that's the name of the game this was the one thing on set i remember on the day of when we were on the day of, i was like i don't know if this is not i don't think i don't know i don't know i don't know i don't know i don't think i don't know and i'm like and you know, I, I even watching that movie back, I always go, I wonder what it would have been like in yeah. the morning with her busting out of the hospital and seeing the hospital behind and the staircase yep. below and ambulances underneath it. Like that is the ending to the movie. And so we had to change that because we couldn't shoot in minus 14 degree weather uh, to no one's fault. But the fact that we had to shoot in Winnipeg because that's where we got the most tax credits. And that's, so that is sort of like the, the back and forth of the weather was a daily sort of thing, always looking ahead. You know, we mm-hmm. shot all of our exterior scenes first, um, the first four days of the movie, because we knew it was going to snow. You know, like we basically grew a garden in a warehouse, a full garden in a warehouse for two months. And then on the morning of the shoot, transported the garden into her garden, shot the outside. And by the next day, all the plants were dead. You know, like oh. it was a lot of that. Wow. So it was, it was very, very, very cold. <laughs> I mean, the cl- the climax was honestly a bummer. You know, like I've I've been lucky to have made a lot of movies, and like every movie, like and he says, you're gonna lose locations. Sometimes you lose actors to like things outside of their control, like tragedies. But like, man, like for a movie that's all about being locked inside, that finale was gonna have this huge outdoor, like wide open, big scale. And you know, I, I remember we tried everything we could to to still shoot outside before we, you know, like went with plan B. I remember at one point we were like, okay, we'll have like flamethrower heaters, which is a real thing in, in Canada, like right off a of frame, you know, we'll have actors all wearing like electric underwear or whatever it is. And, but, um, and I remember like we had a big conversation with Sarah Paulson who to her credit was down, you know, like she's like, but she did say, cause I remember at one point we were like, look, Sarah, like Leo DiCaprio did it for the Revenant, you know, like, <laughs> and then she, you know, she was so funny. Cause she's like, yeah, but Leo is supposed to be freezing his ass off in that movie. Right. You know, my character is signed up for. <laughs> yeah. And, and like, you know, like it makes sense for the character and the actor to be freezing, but like in this movie, it didn't really fit the mold of the film for Diana to be freezing her like butt off. Like, and I remember like, we just had to, we just had to compromise. And, you know, I think, you know, to everyone's credit, I think, I think we still pulled it off, but yeah, for us, it's always going to be like that wistful imagination of what could have been. Yeah. If yeah. Anish blows up to George Lucas proportions, we will definitely re-release. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just, with it's just like ended ending with, with age down actors and, you know, it's so funny. Like, I think one of the ways that you can feel it is the aesthetic of the movie changes in that yeah. last in the climax of the movie. Like it was, it like suddenly feels like this modern, like Blade Runnery kind of vibes in that, in that hospital. Like it loses that Hitchcockian feel yeah. right when she explodes out of that, in that final climax where like, she's at the digital, like the digital escalator, not digital escalator. It all feels so yeah. digital and like <laughs> LED. You know? and, like, yeah. It was supposed to feel timeless. You know, it's supposed to feel like, the front of an old hospital with emergency written out the front of it, you know? And like, that was when we had, we had shot it. We had tech scouted that location that we were going to shoot at. We had done everything except on the day of the shoot. It was just too fucking yeah. cold. And like, and even just as far as like antagonists, like the car was supposed to be right there. The like, this, right there. like the idea is like, Oh, if she gets into this car, it's over for daughter, you know, like, 
But anyway, we're, we're going to just keep emoting all this. But it was, <laughs> it was a hell of a compromise, and I can't wait to hopefully never have to do that again. <laughs> yeah, I, so I, I really appreciate you guys talking about all of that and sharing all of that because I think that's the, the other aspect of making a movie that people often don't think about is that it's, you know, you have to make creative decisions and there's the, the perfect ideal world where you get to do exactly what you want. And then there's all these logistical problems and some are small and some are huge. And so it's making movies, not just about like, can I picture a cool movie? It's can I navigate all these crazy changes and still come away with something that is getting the idea across. So I, I think that's, I don't want to like keep, telling you guys about how how great you are but but i think that it's cool now with two movies now that are are challenging in their own ways that both times the the movie is a movie and is telling a story and is like engaging and emotionally affecting people and i think that's that's something that it seems like you guys prioritize is you know making sure that the experience for the audience is uh fun and engaging and i appreciate that and yeah i i guess are there i don't know what what are your thoughts on that as far as prioritizing the audience experience versus you know i think a lot of writers can get bogged down in you know the realism of this thing and well this can't possibly happen because this would happen and that and then you kind of if you go too far down that path of like what is the most realistic possible way for this to happen nothing happens nothing happens and it's yeah it's not a movie because movies aren't reality so i guess just kind of phil- philosophically but it's what is your guys approach to to movies and storytelling what do you want the audience to feel and, and get when they're watching one of your movies Small question, no pressure. I'll, I'll start, but I think, I mean, obviously, you know, the, the lame answer is it'll depend on the movie. You know, like searching was very much intended to be this four quadrant, like audience friendly thing. We're going to take you on a journey, but we're going to kind of leave you feeling satisfied and all the boxes will have been checked off and run, you know, partially by design is not supposed to be that. And it's supposed to like, we're not going to answer all the questions. We're going to leave you lingering with some doubt and, and questions of your own, um, so I think just that, that approach to like the audience, you know, thing right there, I think, um, you know, we have always been traditionally like very feedback driven in a lot of ways. Like, you know, we talked last time about our process when we're writing scripts, you know, like in addition to people on the team, like Natalie who read the script and give notes and like our editors give notes on the script. We all, we do this feedback thing where we go out to like strangers or, or friends, I should say, who are not on the project, who like who read and we ask a hundred questions. We do, we, we do the same process in our feedback screenings with when we screen the movie where we're very interrogative. We ask so many questions far more than it's probably typical. I'm always a big fan of like clarity and making sure like this is what the movie is intending to do. Let's make sure the audience gets that. I think Anisha is a little bit less of that. And I think that balance has created a good in between with all of us. And, you know, I'm talking about Natalie as well and our editors. And it's, it's like always that question of like, you know, like what's, what's funny is to use, again, just trying to be really specific here, in Run, near the end of Act 2, um, Daughter's in the basement and Daughter, you know, uh, has just realized, like it hit her, like you need me. You know, like that's what this whole thing's about. It's never been about me. And Mom has a syringe and it's really scary and Daughter's like, I don't want to die. And Mom's like, I would never. And, and it's really vague, but it sounds like Mom is saying this, this needle is going to make you forget everything and you'll be my baby again and you may never walk again, but it's okay. Or you may never move again. <laughs> <laughs> and daughter is locked in this room and it's like, holy shit, like, am I about to become like brain dead? Like, am I going to be comatose? What is this crazy woman about to do? What could she, and this is another, by the way, one of those times where like, oh, this is great. All right, see you next week. We'll figure <laughs> out what happens next. And like, it was so important, like when we landed on this idea of like, well, technically daughter 
could try and kill herself. You know, it's crazy dark. But if mom realizes what's happening, she will have no choice but to get her help because daughter just realized you need me. And, you know, she, w- she would swallow that, you know, that, that um, organophosphate, which Natalie's father, who's a real doctor, loves to keep telling me that doesn't exist. Um, <laughs> and, and, and mom would have no choice but to get her help. So it was like, it was one of those things where I was like, oh my God, we're so brilliant. This is the coolest thing ever. This is thematic. It's a great twist, blah, blah, blah. But in screening the movie, there were so many moments here where it wasn't quite clear. What does that needle do? Additionally, is daughter actually trying to kill herself? Like, is this her giving up? And by chance, she ends up, uh, you know, in the hospital. And it was like one of those debates where it's like, well, and I'm, I'm often going saying like, I do think it needs to be clear systematically, blah, blah, blah. But also there's a question like, well, if it's not clear, it's fine too. Because if the audience wants to believe B or C, that's still fine. You know, like the movie kind of becomes the audiences once they make it. So I think this film was, you know, being such a departure from searching in that way was just really fascinating to have those discussions. And ultimately, you know, I, I do think we always push the needle just enough to maybe satisfy that basic level of clarity. But um, it, it is definitely a movie that I think more than searching is far more open interpretation, even down to individual beats. But Anish, what, what do you think, man? I'm curious about your answer. As far as like the process of feedbacking goes, we, feed, we, we test everything. And, and I think like as, I mean, to be candid, I think as from searching to run to what we do next, I think like my, like my opinion about, listening to every single person's piece of advice has sort of shifted as I was sort of alluding to because like there's an element of movie that you end up being able like possible make you 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 risk yourself making a movie for the lowest common denominator and then not the movie that you wanted to make um and I think like that is a a risk when when clarity comes in but like but that's the that's the con side of it the positive side of it is by by questioning everybody you're trying to also do the thing that you also wanted to do which is like make a movie that like a theater would love, you know, and like a, a lot of people would love. And the difference that I, as a human being, need to, or not as a human being, as I, I think as a filmmaker, that the, the balance that I think I'm now stri- striving to strike is like make the movie the theater would love, but not necessarily the movie that would make the most money, you know? And I think those are different. I think making a good movie and making the movie that makes the most amount of money is a very different, um, it, it kind of opens itself up to a very different set of choices. Um, and I think like, but, but, I don't know, like the positives of, of, of listening to an audience and, and, and being very specific with feedback and opening to feedback, like that, that is 100% verifiably proven as a way to make a, a, a good movie. So I think like so far, I think are, there are no major problems with the, with, with the system. So I, I, I like that a lot. Yeah. And like the, the, like the North Star is like, what's the movie that's going to have that mass appeal that'll make good money and is a good movie? You know, like it, it, mm-hmm. it, it happens all the time, but it's, it's harder. It's such a harder target to hit because so often you have to sacrifice one for the other. And especially as we make studio movies now, you know, like which we're lucky to even be, you know, doing now, like it, there's that whole other entity that, you know, will often, you know, like for a lot of obvious reasons, will only want to make the movies that make a lot of money because they're the ones who are investing all the, the movie's budget or the P&A budget and, and all sorts of things. And they have to answer to their shareholders. So that, that is always going to be like, that is the creative struggle, I imagine, like probably on any type of art. Right. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you guys were talking about just the fundamental creative struggle, as you're saying. And then it's, I think what I appreciate about your guys' approach to it is that you're cognizant of the fact that movies are kind of for an audience and for people and that is this kind of generous thing where you want other people to be engaged because I think the, yeah. the danger that some artists can run into is you know I want to make my movie and the audience is sitting in this theater to watch my movie and they are here for me <laughs> right. and I guess, you know have the, the, the opposite thing and so I think I'm 
I'm excited to continue to hear uh, your journey as, as you're trying to find this balance of making something that appeals to people and entertains people, but also is is the artistic vision that you have in your head. I'm, I'm very excited to hear that. I can't commit to never being that guy, but uh, <laughs> in the future, but I, I appreciate <laughs> that we're getting now. Yeah, no, it's well, the journey. It's great. And I think, you know, there's also, you can have a really artsy niche movie that is still for somebody besides the artist, you know, like it, yeah. it can still be made for a niche audience that, and, and that, and that, and that artist knows what they want. But then there's, then there's other movies that I've seen the movies once in a while, like, you know, occasionally at Sundance or at a film festival where it's like, I don't know who this is for. Like, like yeah. not even, there's not even a niche audience that this seems to be for. It just seems to be somebody wanted to make this movie because, yeah. and, uh, and that's really frustrating to me because I, I'm, I'm down for an incredibly niche, you know, specific movie experience but I need to feel like it was made for somebody else besides the artist's own ego. Uh, so I just want to say really quick, like I really appreciate how transparent you guys are. Like I listened back to our searching podcast and like I learned so much from you guys just hearing about your process. And I appreciate right now how you're being so honest about the experience that we all have as creators where you finish something and all you can think about are all the things that didn't work out, you know, all <laughs> the scenes that didn't happen, which of course an audience, like once again, my parents watching this movie a couple nights ago, they didn't have any of those thoughts. They had no idea what was missing. They loved it as it was. It, this is, this is what the vision was supposed to be, but I appreciate you guys sharing that like no matter you're making a movie for Lionsgate it's the biggest movie on Hulu ever. And you're still having the same experience that all of us have with, with you know, all the second guessing and what ifs on that topic of transparency. I'd love to hear about the journey towards distribution that this movie went on, because that was also not how it was supposed to go. It was supposed to come out in theaters in May, but obviously the world's kind of stopped slash ended in 2020. <laughs> and so a lot of plans changed. So I'd love to hear about the journey to Hulu and how that's worked out for you guys. And how has it changed? Maybe just how you're thinking about the future of distribution and this industry that we're all you know, a part of like, what is going on here <laughs> moving forward? You know, we were supposed to come out Mother's Day and that was a date that we fought for, <laughs> to, to be frank, with Lionsgate quite a bit. Mother's right Day. there on Anisha's poster, <laughs> yeah. May 8th. May 8th. <laughs> um, and because we were just like, get it. It's a movie about a mom and daughter and it's not a fun Mother's Day movie. It'd be so cool, counter-programming. And, and you know, Lionsgate bought on and, and it was going to be this whole campaign about that. And I remember early on in the pandemic when we had calls, it was like, we were so vigilant about like, let's not lose our theatrical. You know, we had a feeling like this is a movie that, I mean, we had seen the movie play in a couple of test screenings, you know, the studio finance energy test screenings. So these are not the ones that we do internally, but rather like 200 strangers meet in Long Beach or something. And, and, and it was like, the movie has this awesome, like people are gasping together. People are whispering theories. People are yelling, oh, oh hell no, at, you know, <laughs> plot points. And it was so cool. And we just had a feeling this is going to be, you know, another movie that's going to definitely make its budget back and then some. But, um, you know, once it became apparent that this pandemic was here to stay and, and all the big blockbusters were getting off the calendar, it didn't feel economically smart anymore to insist on a theatrical release when who knows 2022 or whatever it is, because at that age, we have to imagine it's going to be so competitive now. Like, are you going to choose to spend your hard earned money watching Wonder Woman, the Batman or our little tiny studio thriller? You know, like it just kind of was like, well, no, like you're going to probably want to see the bigger movies. Um, or do we want to come out during the pandemic theatrically? And we were very much not for that because, you know, we're taking this thing super seriously. We do not want people risking their lives to see something that we, you know, made. It doesn't make any sense. When the conversation of streamers came about, it, it was kind of a no-brainer for us. And we were 
you know, we were really fortunate that there was um, interest from from the streamers. And, and when it was becoming clear it would be Hulu, like it was a, it was it was it was perfect for us. You know, like it's so funny because like so much of our editing was like, OK, how do we make sure this is not the act? which is that series on Hulu. And then it was like, well, wait, if we can just land at Hulu, then we can just embrace it. And you could finish watching the act and be like, hey, did you like that? Watch this or vice versa. It, it was, and you know, I think there was an, uh, there's an element to Hulu, which is nice that it's just like, they haven't been around as long as Netflix on the original programming front. You know, there's not a new release every weekend with Hulu. So that we had a feeling it would have just a bit more of a, ooh, I want to see this, this new thing, you know, and made a lot of sense. And they've been great to work with. Yeah, I have no, uh, no negative, literally like, this is one of those things where it's just like, you know, like you, 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 if you want to read between the lines, there's nothing to read between the lines on. It's just like <laughs> the, the, the pandemic happened. We couldn't release our movie. Like it doesn't make any sense for a studio to not release our movie when every week a major blockbuster is being pulled and added to this like backlog of movies that when theaters come out in a way that it's going to be, I guess it's going to feel like a grand opening, I guess, because Tenet proved that you couldn't, or like at least to a lot of people, like you couldn't release a movie theatrically and kind of do this weird, like dipping toes in both kind of waters here, you know? So like when theaters do open, we're just going to have bat- massive movie after massive movie. And like Ron's not going to be able to compete in that. So it's like, it's, it's unfortunate in the sense that we made this movie for the big screen and it's not going there. But like, if this was the smartest decision to make, and on top of being the smartest decision we, we could make, we ended up at Hulu, which was a place where like a single movie is a big deal still. And that to us is like a huge win. I feel like Hulu is almost this year is establishing them as kind of this place for indie movies or like movie premieres because Palm Springs also was this huge yeah. hit on Hulu earlier this year. So I feel like it was a very smart choice because you're right on Netflix things can get lost very quickly. There's so much content constantly coming out that you, you feel like a, a new show or a new movie comes out and it's like buried immediately. Yeah. Whereas I've, I've been watching the kind of the rollout for run on Hulu and it's, I feel like it's huge. It's a big deal. There's a lot of, social media chatter about it people everybody knows about it i mean everybody there's like this sarah paulson renaissance happening right now so it all it all just really clicked and i i think it i agree it's the perfect place for this film right it it still feels like an event and there is because we do still have you know we have twitter we have all these other places where conversations can be happening around the movie that it, it preserves some of that excitement of okay this is like the run weekend and like oh i'm seeing that person talk about this or like oh that's a cool thing that person was saying i want to make sure i notice that and so it I, it seems like it, it did end up in a as good of a place as it could have especially yeah. considering everything and i'm I'm glad to hear you guys are happy with it because I think it, it does feel like a very nice home for it, for sure. And, and as a consumer of movies, I'm frustrated that I can't just watch all these movies. I mean, I have a good home theater system. So like I have a movie theater at my home. I want to <laughs> I want to watch your movie. Give it to me. So I, I appreciate you letting me watch your movie before, you know, whenever we can go to theaters again. There is that thing where I feel like home theater setups have become more affordable. Obviously, not everyone has them, but I think it is more affordable and because people are stuck at home there is often like an audience like because it was this movie release that was happening it was like well i want to make sure that i watch it with my partner i want to watch it with my mom and we're going to sit down and have like a movie night and I, so I, I don't know it worked out well i'm, I'm glad you guys feel that way uh, and before we wrap up i just to kind of go back to the end of my question just because i i i think of you, Sev, especially having a real, real pulse on like what's happening in the industry and, you know, what, you know, what's going on. Is there anything to even say right now about the state of the film industry? Are we all just kind of on hold waiting to see how things play out post pandemic? Like, how should we think about theaters or theatrical release moving forward? I, I don't know what the scale of your next project is, but like, 
ha- has your thinking changed about like how you want to make your next movie based on the current realities or are we kind of just thinking this is a temporary hold we're going to go back to normal at some point that's a good question man i mean I happen to be like in the middle of a lot of films in different stages of production. I got a movie, Judas and the Black Messiah, which we just finished, um, you know, Warner Brothers. And that's, you know, will be announced soon. We have Space Jam 2, which we're still in the make, middle of making just by the virtue of those movies take forever. And LeBron's been pretty busy with his day job. And that's <laughs> slated to be released next July theatrically. That's the plan. You know, we're in the middle of prep on Searching 2, Anish and I and Natalie and, and uh, our, our whole Searching family which we're actually about to watch the first cut of today, which is awesome. Oh, wow. Yeah, we haven't shot the movie yet, but we have a whole cut we're going to watch. And then, you know, and then Anish and I are writing our third movie that he's going to direct, which, you know, to be frank, I imagine or we imagine is something that we're going to hopefully be shooting once Corona is not a thing anymore. Um, And that movie would not be as possible with Corona. Um, So I don't know, like, to be honest with you, like, I'm not, I'm, you know, I just happen to have an interesting perspective with a couple of different active projects, but I don't know, man. Like I, I think this is a very serious situation that far supersedes what movie studios and theaters need to, this is something that has to be fixed on a governmental level from the top down. I think there's needs to be a lot more individual responsibility. I, I mean, I look at places like Australia and some of the East Asian countries who have done such a far better job of handling it. And I wish that could be the same here in the States and in other countries. But I think, the only thing to really do if you are a writer is write. If you're a filmmaker, plan, prepare, develop, write if you can. Um, if you have to shoot your movies now, like I would really question, like, is there a way you could do it in as safe of a way as possible? Um, if you have a movie that's finished and you're lucky enough that multiple parties may want to, um, you know, acquire it, then I would recommend you just go and do that now because I imagine there is a hunger for content that people will be probably paying premiums to buy finished movies. Um, if, if they're good and more than one, one, more than one party wants it, but I'm sorry, Alex, I don't have any insight beyond that. Like I, you know, I, am very project to project and like, you know, some of these movies are so expensive that it's hard to imagine a Hulu would want be able to afford it. You know, other movies like run are inexpensive to make. So there's a real, uh, opportunity for a return on your investment. If you do get a sale, I think some of these movies are more award driven. So like, it, is it possible to have that same kind of feeling, um, if you sell it, um, so the, I don't know. Sorry, man. I don't have necessarily one, one right answer, but hopefully that was insightful in and of itself. Yeah, no, I think nobody has real answers right now because we're in the weirdest year of our lives. So <laughs> here we are. But yeah, no, I feel like that there's a lot of good insight in there and it'll be yeah. interesting to see how, how it all continues to play out. Um, okay, well, lastly, can you give us a, a tease at all of this next project <laughs> that you guys are are co-writing and the niche you will be directing um yeah i'm gonna not we're not gonna pitch the whole thing pitch pitch half whole thing just okay. maybe 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 that was a jinx who knows i'm um, <laughs> just gonna say uh, uh maybe uh, no no i'm kidding no i also i'm not as close to a good a pitch as that is but uh so the the next film is um in the spirit of sort of jumping from step to step is is significantly larger than uh, the ones we've made so far, as far as scale goes, you know, we were locked in a computer screen, then we were locked in a house, and now we've opened the house and we can see sky, you know, so I think like, um, uh, but this next film is, um, it's a heist film. Uh, and I Ooh. think like, we really, really want to try and, and see what we can do in that kind of space. Uh, um, but it is a heist film set against the backdrop of uh, the American immigration industry and, and, and world. Um, and so just like, I think all of our favorite heist films sort of like, at least like from Inception, or I think Inception is the best one in the last few years. Bad Genius did it really well where they just like turn, they like make, they use all the confines and the tropes of a heist film, but they make it 
new and they make it fresh. And I think like, hopefully we found something that can, that can really kind of fresh, freshify that sort of a, that subgenre. That's awesome. I love a good heist film and I'm really excited to hear that that's what you guys are working on. Yeah, new heist film from you guys sounds fantastic. I'm on board. (laughs) Awesome. Cool. Well, thank you guys so much for joining. Um, Where can people find you and where can people find Run? You could find Run only on Hulu if you're in America. Uh, Outside of the States, uh, it is being released in certain countries and other countries will, you know, hopefully have an announcement soon as far as how and where you can see it. Uh, You can find me on all, all social media at Savohanian. Yeah, and you can find me on all social medias at uh, Anish Chagnati. Cool. Great. Well, uh, to wrap up, Beyond the Screenplay is produced by Vince Major and edited by Eric Schneider. I've been joined today by Alex Cayeros and guests Anis Chaganti and Sev Ohanian. I'm Michael Tucker. Thank you to all the patrons for making the show possible. Thank you for listening, and we will see you in the next episode. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Bye. Bye.